This morning we're going to deal with the London Confession of Faith, chapter 7, thank you, which is God's Covenant, and it's found on page 674 in the back of the Blue Trinity Hymnal. We ready to go? Adam, we're ready in the back? All right. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, thank you for this day of rest and worship, and thank you for the privilege of coming into your house with your people. Thank you for the rich heritage of biblical truth that has been handed down to us from the time of the Reformation. We pray as we consider what they had to say about your faithfulness and your love and making promises to your people, we pray that the Holy Spirit would shine light on this and glorify your name because you're worthy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning our focus is the promise of salvation, which our confession refers to as God's covenant of grace. And this is found in chapter 7. Now, when I deal with this uh, in seminary, the seminary students, we get into greater detail about the relationship between the Westminster Assembly and what they had to say about God's covenant and our own Baptist forefathers and how they changed what the Westminster said. I'm not going to get into all that stuff this morning. This morning, I just want to give you the big picture of what our confession says about the covenant of grace. This chapter was modeled on the Westminster Assembly and what they confessed, but also our Baptist forefathers greatly modified what the Westminster Confession says about God's covenant. Although they built on what they said, they greatly modified it. And the, the purpose this morning is not to get into all those modifications, but rather my purpose this morning is not so much theological as it is practical. I, I want to go over exactly what our confession says and bring home biblical applications of what they wrote. So that's the approach I'm taking. I'm taking a more, rather than theological and analytical I want to take a more biblical, exegetical, and practical approach to what the confession says in chapter 7. Have any questions? I know you do. That's all right. Uh, I was talking to you. Who do you th I mean, who do you think I'm talking to? Anyway, uh, that, that's the way I want to approach it this morning, if you don't mind. Now, if you, if you notice down in, uh, in paragraph 3 of our confession, it begins with, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. So by way of introduction, when they're talking about this covenant, they're talking about what they call the covenant of grace. And they say it's revealed in the gospel, and it's revealed first 
in the promise of salvation, Genesis 3.15, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So he's speaking to the devil. And to the devil, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And between your posterity, the devil's children, and her posterity, Eve's children. And then it says, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So he pictures the devil like a snake and he pictures the Savior like a man stepping on the snake's head while the snake is biting him. That's the picture of the destruction of Satan. So what is this text talking about? Because our confession says it's talking about the covenant of grace. Now, it's important to understand how the Westminster Standards define the covenant of grace, the parties, partakers, and promises of the covenant of grace. Because everything said in our confession about it is built on what they said. So in order to understand that, you go to the larger catechism, question 31, which says, quote, with whom was the covenant of grace made? And the answer is, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. So how in the world do you get from Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, to the, to the statement that the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. How do you get there from there? Well, thankfully, we're not dealing with Bert and I. You know, Bert and I can't get there from here. We're not dealing with that. Thankfully, you can get there. In fact, the road is relatively straightforward, and it's exegetical. The first question is, who are Eve's seed? The second question is, who's the devil's seed? The next question is, who is her descendant that's going to crush the devil's head? Now, if you look in the New Testament, the New Testament in 1 John gives you a very straightforward answer to that question. It says that Cain was of the evil one. And when Seth was born in Genesis 4, Eve is recorded to say, God has granted me another seed instead of Abel because Cain killed him. Cain was not her seed, but he was her child, yes. But John says that Cain was of the wicked one. 
he was one of the devil's children. Because John says in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Abel was one of Eve's seed. She was, he was her seed. Cain was the devil's seed. This talking about spiritual children. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman means I will apply redemption to her. And I will create spiritual enmity between Satan and Eve. And between Satan's spiritual children, like Cain, and Eve's spiritual children, like Abel. And between your seed and her seed, the very same enmity that I put between Satan and Eve, I will put between Cain and Abel, between the devil's spiritual children and Eve's spiritual children. I will apply redemption. I will put enmity means I will apply redemption. I will rescue from sin. I'm going to emancipate some humans from bondage to sin. And that will take the form of creating perpetual spiritual warfare and hostility on earth in every generation between Satan's seed, the wicked like Cain, and Eve's seed, the righteous like Abel. In every generation, there will be righteous and wicked because he will create enmity and he will perpetuate that enmity between your seed and her seed. Perpetual spiritual war between the righteous and the wicked in every generation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here's the, in John, John says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil. So Eve's children are the children of God. And Eve's children are Christ's spiritual children. That is, Eve's spiritual children are Christ's spiritual children and all God's elect. Why is that? Because she's the mother of all living human beings. So her spiritual children are all God's elect who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, how can they be Christ's spiritual children? Jesus told the Jews the answer in John 8, 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and is glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Verily I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. They're his spiritual children. They're all God's elect. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that's how you get there. Because Eve's spiritual children are Christ's spiritual children. God's spiritual children chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And look at the second part. And he will crush your head. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ, the son of Eve, 
who will come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. For this, John says, Christ was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So that second aspect of the promise is talking about the accomplishment of redemption. The first part, I will put enmity between you and the woman and perpetuate it in every generation between your seed and her seed, the righteous and the wicked, salvation applied, redemption applied to all God's elect, all God's spiritual children, all Eve's spiritual children, all Christ's spiritual children, all God's elect will be redeemed from sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. And the accomplishment of redemption, Christ, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Redemption accomplished and applied. With whom is the covenant of grace made? With Christ, the second Adam, who will crush the devil's head and accomplish redemption. And all the elect as his seed, to whom he will apply redemption by creating spiritual enmity between them and the devil and the wicked in every generation. But there's the connection between Genesis 3.15 that's why it's called the covenant of grace. Its promises are two. I will apply redemption. I will accomplish redemption. I will apply redemption. I will create enmity in every generation between the spiritual children of Eve, Christ, God, and the spiritual children of the devil. I will apply redemption. I will accomplish redemption. The Redeemer will crush the devil's head. Christ and all God's elect. Redemption accomplished and applied the covenant of grace. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. It's absolutely right. That's how it comes out of Genesis 3.15. You can get there from here. Did you get there from here with me? Okay? See the connection between what the confession says, of, uh, actually the uh, catechism, larger catechism says, because the Westminster Confession, a larger catechism, that's one. There, there's no contradiction between them. And if some guy wants to go find a, a contradiction between them, have fun. No contradiction. Westminster Assembly didn't contradict itself when it wrote the Confession and the Larger Catechism. So what they wrote in chapter 7 is not a contradiction of what they said in the Catechism, question 31. And what they wrote in the Confession, Westminster Confession, chapter 7, this section of it in our Confession has been copied verbatim. So therefore, if you want to understand what it means, you have to take it in the light of the larger catechism, question 31. And that's based on understanding Genesis 3.15. You say, all this is your introduction? No, 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 no. This is far too complicated to be an introduction. This is prolegomena. like that? Want me to explain that to you? You do? All right. 
while we were having breakfast this morning out there in the in the in the men's breakfast meeting, um, I was explaining to them that theologians, when they don't know what they're talking about, they make up big words. And I said one of the big words that is especially striking to me is the big word prolegomena, which is not an English word. It's a letter-for-letter -letter equivalent of a Greek participle. And if you want to pronounce the Greek, it's prolegomena. But when you're a theologian making up big words, you say prolegomena. And what does that participle mean? It means, quote, the things being said beforehand, or introduction. So when you're a theologian and you want to talk about introduction, you don't say introduction, you say prolegomena. That was my point this morning. So this is too big and fancy to be just an introduction, so this is a prolegomena. That's, that's it, that's what I was saying. Okay, you got it? All right. Right, so anyway, I, everything I want to say about the confession and what it says about the covenant of grace, we've got to build on this understanding. And of course, the Baptists didn't write the larger catechism, and we don't typically go around reading the larger catechism. But if you're going to understand the confession correctly, you have to understand it in light of the larger catechism and how it defines the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? Right, okay, so there you have it. Now, the first thing that our confession talks about is the need for the covenant of grace. And then, the second thing, paragraph two, it talks about the implementation of the covenant of grace. And then, thirdly, it talks about some of the distinguishing features of the covenant of grace. So let's go through then what it says. First of all, the need for the covenant of grace. And in paragraph one, they say, and this comes right out of the Westminster Assembly, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe him obedience as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life by but, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Covenant expresses God's heart, what they call voluntary condescension, his grace. His willingness to communicate promises to his creatures and to communicate these promises in a solemn way with an oath. So he condescends. He stoops to us in such a way. And to support this, they appeal to Luke 17.10, even so you also when you shall have done the things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done which was our duty to do. Well, I don't want to say more about that right now, because then the Westminster Confession goes on to describe this voluntary condescension originally in the covenant of works, and then after the fall in the covenant of grace. And our confession completely removes the paragraph on the covenant of works. And again, when we get into seminary, we get into all that, not this morning. This morning, I just want to then pick up what our confession actually does say. Not what it doesn't say, what it does say. And what it does say is it moves right from the need for uh, God's covenant to the implementation of the covenant of grace. The implementation. In paragraph 2, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, 
It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And we already saw what that involves. It is his promise to accomplish and apply redemption. It is his promise. I will put enmity. That is, he will apply redemption to all God's elect. He will crush your head. He will accomplish redemption through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God will apply and accomplish redemption. With whom is the covenant of grace made? With Christ and with all God's elect. To all God's elect, he will apply redemption. And Christ will accomplish redemption. That's the covenant of grace. Now, how is that covenant of grace implemented? How does he fulfill that promise and the focus of this text or this paragraph or this section is on how he fulfills the promise to apply redemption and how does he fulfill it how does he implement the promise I will apply redemption how he implements it through the gospel through the general and through the effectual gospel call. Now notice what it says. It says, He was pleased to make a covenant of grace wherein, that is, in its implementation, He freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved. The general well-meant, indiscriminate gospel call. It's through that general, well-meant, indiscriminate gospel call that he implements and fulfills the promise, I will apply redemption. That's how he does it. But not through the indiscriminate gospel call alone, but notice, connected to something else, the effectual call. And promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. He regenerates all the elect. So how does he apply redemption? Through the general call of the gospel, through the word, and the effectual call of the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, regenerating all God's elect. To give them the Holy Spirit, to make them able to believe is regeneration. That make sense? So, what's the covenant of grace? I will apply redemption. I will accomplish redemption. How does he implement the promise to apply redemption? Through the general and effectual Paul of the gospel. Alright, so let's look at the biblical support for this. They offer a, a bunch of biblical support. The general call of the gospel. He freely, sincerely, genuinely, unfeignedly offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ and requires that they believe. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that disbelieves 
will be condemned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord Jehovah, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, because I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest to your souls, because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. John 5, 34 and 40. But the witness which I receive is not from man. Howbeit I say these things that you may be saved. And you will not come to me that you may have life. John 6.37 All that which the Father gives me will come to me. And him that comes to me I'll never cast out. Acts 2.38 Peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ to the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Revelation 22, 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And he that hears, let him say, come. And he that's a thirst, let him come. And whoever is willing, let him take the water of life freely. There's a free offer of the gospel. It's sincere. It's well meant. And it's indiscriminate to people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. God sincerely, freely, genuinely, unfeignedly, I get that unfeignedly from the canons of Dort. That's the word that they use to describe it. Unfeignedly, sincerely, freely, the confession says, genuinely, indiscriminately, Calls sinners to Christ. That's how he implements the covenant of grace. That's how he applies redemption. That's how he creates spiritual enmity. And then, the effectual call of the gospel. Promising to give to all those that are ordained to eternal life as Holy Spirit. To make them willing and able. And they, they quote this promise of the old... In the Old Testament, the promise of the new covenant that God will create a society, the Christian church, Christian Israel under the new covenant, that he will create a society marked by regeneration. A new heart, Ezekiel 36, 36. A new heart will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my statutes, my ordinances, and do them. John 6, 44 and 45. No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Whom he foreknew, 
He also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be firstborn among many brethren and whom he foreordained them he also called. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, for his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead for our trespasses, made us alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works that nobody should boast. Philippians 1.29, because to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. Titus 3, 5 and 6, not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth, by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth, to unfeigned love of the brethren, love one another from the heart fervently, having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides. Through the general call of the gospel, where he paints the picture of Christ and freely offers Christ to sinners. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he effectually calls all his elect, gives them repentance and faith, and enables them to believe. This is what he does. This is how he creates enmity. This is how he applies redemption. Through the general and effectual call of the gospel. In the covenant of grace, God freely supplies all he requires. He gives faith and repentance as a free gift to all his elect. He makes them willing and able to believe by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It is all of God. It is all of grace. Therefore, to God alone be all the glory. All right, finally, notice that our confession of faith highlights three distinctive features of the covenant of grace. It's it is progressive in its disclosure. It is indispensable. And it is founded in God's eternal plan, his eternal covenantal plan, purpose, and counsel of redemption. This covenant, covenant of grace, is revealed in the gospel. First of all, Genesis 3.15, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. The promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. We just looked at that already, because that's the foundation. That's where it's first revealed. I will put enmity 
between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, your spiritual children, the wicked, and her seed, all God's elect, God's spiritual children, Christ's spiritual children. Redemption will be applied to them all in every generation. And he will crush your head. Redemption will be accomplished. There's the beginning of the disclosure of God's promise to save or redeem his covenant of grace. And afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery of it thereof was completed in the New Testament. So it's progressively unfolded. Hebrews 1.1 God, having of old time spoken to the fathers in the prophets by diverse portions and in diverse manners, has now spoken to us in his Son. That's the first thing. It has been progressively revealed. Secondly, and it is founded, its foundation, in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. It's founded in God's eternal counsel of redemption. They appeal to Titus 1-2 and 2 Timothy 1-9. Grace was given us in him before the foundation of the world. And Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times eternal. What God does in history is rooted and grounded in what God resolved in eternity. And finally, their last point is that it is indispensable. They say, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. In other words, there's only been one way of salvation, and it's been by grace ever since the fall when God said, I will create enmity, I will put enmity, I will apply redemption, and I will... And he will accomplish redemption. I will send him to accomplish redemption. Redemption accomplished. Redemption applied. That's the only way anyone's ever been saved. Never been any other way of salvation. It's always been of God's grace. That's Genesis 3.15. That's how sinners get saved. It's all of God and all of grace. Ever since God said, I will apply redemption, I will accomplish redemption. Christ will accomplish it. He will apply it to God's elect. That's the only way people ever get saved. Genesis 3.15 shows you that very clearly. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Referring to the terms of the... Uh, of the prohibition, the representative prohibition of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not, you shall not eat of it, because in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about the terms on which Adam stood in the state of innocence. He's referring to that. So nobody can be saved that way. 
The only way to be saved is through what God says he's going to do, which he implements by the general and effectual gospel call. Hebrews 11, 6 and 13. And without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to him because he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that seek after him. And Romans 4, what shall we say then that Abraham our forefather has found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not toward God. Acts 4, verse 12, and in none other is there salvation. For neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein you must be saved. And then they also appeal to John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Before the giving of the old covenant, under the old covenant, under the new covenant, and every generation since the coming of Christ, there's only one way of salvation, and that's in Christ. It's always been that way, ever since the fall. So they, they, they underscore the progressive disclosure, the indispensable nature, and uh, the eternal foundation of this covenant of grace. All right, let's sum up. What's the covenant of grace? What is it? All right, it's God's promise, God's solemn promise to accomplish and apply redemption. What are the promises? I will apply redemption. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will accomplish redemption. He will crush your head. Who are its partakers? All God's elect between your seed and her seed. All the spiritual children of Eve, God and Christ. And Jesus Christ. He will crush your head. The partakers, Christ, God's elect in him. The promise, redemption accomplished and applied. How is it implemented? Through the general and effectual gospel call. What are some of its characteristics? Well, it's founded in God's eternal counsel of salvation. It's the only way of salvation. And it's progressively unfolded in the Bible.